Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What is up, my friends? We got an awesome show for you today. Our returning guest is Jason Calacanis, famed angel investor and podcast host of the All In Podcast and This Week in Startups. Today's episode, Jason shares why he's more excited about the startup landscape than he's been in the past decade. He touches on his approach to handling large winners like Uber, Robinhood, and Calm, handling your losers, and also lessons learned from surviving multiple cycles as a VC, and why he's now focused on democratizing access for everybody to venture capital. Before we get to the episode, do us a favor. Please be sure to share this podcast with a friend. We have some incredible shows lined up and you don't want to miss them. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Jason Calcanis. Jason, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Big fan of the show. And uh, yeah, let's get to it. Lots to talk about. You know, man, it's been, I was like, I looked it up the other day because I want to listen to our old interview. And I was like, how long has it been? And I cannot believe this, but it's literally been five years. You were in LA. It was episode 69. And uh, we're all we're closing on like 500 now. Oh, am I 420 and 69? Wow, what a coincidence! Well, uh, we'll see what number this is. Name it 420, just for the heck of it. Yeah, no matter what. <laughs> but listeners, definitely go back and listen to, to the first episode with Jason because we do a lot of background and lay some foundation talking about angel investing, and we'll talk. We'll get in deep again today, but it's definitely worth a complimentary one-two listen. It's really thoughtful, and I think it aged well. We'll touch on some of the stuff today, but first we got to talk about a couple of things. Where do we find you? Are you in the Sierras? I am at Lake Tahoe. And so I gave some thought over the last couple of years after a friend of mine died, Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, a very close friend of mine, tragically died. And I was like, gosh, he lived such an amazing life, such a beautiful human being. His book was Delivering Happiness. He tried to make everybody happy and joyful every chance he got. And I was really impacted by his death, which came, you know, the day after my 50th birthday during COVID. Uh, November 29th was, I think, when they officially said he had died. And, you know, as I was having conversations with some friends and it turned out I, I had never really thought about anything that I enjoyed in life or optimizing my life for my own enjoyment. I've always tried to be of service to my family, my friends, try to be a really good friend, really good father, really good husband, really good investor, board member, you know, collaborator, boss, whatever it is. And I I was talking to somebody, I said, what do you enjoy? And I like doing my podcast. I like angel investing. Like, yeah, that's for other people as well as yourself. But is there anything you do just purely for yourself? I said, you know, I always like skiing. Great memory skiing with my dad when I was a kid at Hunter Mountain and Wyndham. Then I just said, YOLO, and I bought the best ski and ski outhouse I could find with a movie theater in it. Quite an indulgence for a kid from Brooklyn who grew up middle class to own a second home, to even own a, a primary home to me. But to own a ski house, that ski and ski out was a mind-blowing concept for me. And 
Last year, I skied 40 days. This year, I've skied 16 or 17 so far. And then uh, I'll be going to Niseko in Japan in two weeks, or probably at the time you publish this. And I'll um, do a speaking gig in Tokyo. But I had on my bucket list, I, I always wanted to ski in another country, whether it was South America, Europe, Courchevel, you know, Italian Alps, whatever, and Japan specifically. And I got a speaking gig in Tokyo, a low paying one, not one of my like big corporate ones. And I, I told my speaking bureau and the people who do my speaking stuff internally, anything in Miami, Salt Lake City or a ski town or Japan, I'll do. France, whatever. If I get a paid speaking gig, because I had said no to them for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, I'm going to Salt Lake next week. Is this the first time for you to Japan? First time to Niseko to ski in Japan. I've been to Japan many times. It's one of my favorite places to go. So anyway, long story short, I've been trying to incorporate some things that I enjoy into my life every year now that I've turned 50, you know, I'm in my 50s. Well, smart, thoughtful. Before moving to LA, I was a Tahoe resident. So I lived down in Dollar Point, different part of my life. You know, I lived with like five roommates and worked in Incline Village. But Jason, I just got back from Japan last weekend. I grew up skiing in Colorado, but we have a kind of like an annual ski trip that's been going on for a very long time. It started out mostly in the US, but then to Canada and elsewhere. But you and I can download after this so we don't spend the whole time talking about it. But we've been to Japan skiing probably five or six times. And I imagine we should talk something about markets uh, eventually yeah, on sure. this podcast. But Absolutely. Um, well, I've become a public market investor now, you know, uh, with my jtrading.com. <laughs> I was going to ask you about how many days you got in this year. And so, All right. So one more rando question before we start. I don't know if you saw this, but I tweeted this to you. There's an annual thing we do every year. We've been doing this for probably seven years on Twitter. And we I was actually writing about a variant today. It was talking about free money in markets. And one of the things I was tweeting out today is to the followers to say, what do you earn on your savings cash balance? And I've done this various years. And the answer is always half the people say either they don't know what they earn on their bank account or it's essentially zero, right? Which is free money because you can get 4% anywhere now, buy an ETF, get 4%, put in T-bills. But there's another one that we've been doing for a long time, which is looking up abandoned assets at state governments, right? So it's in the, the main website, it's called unclaimed.org. But we talk to financial advisors to do this. And I say, hey, you can do it for clients. You go to Thanksgiving, talk to your family, look them up. And what happens is people move, they have stocks, stock certificates. We found millions and millions of dollars for people. I think the largest is like 250, 250K. We don't take anything. Obviously, we say, hey, go find this. Nothing people like better than found money and goodwill. But we were demonstrating this other day on Twitter. So you don't believe me. I say, who's got a funny name? Calacanis. Calacanis. And you know this. You got like 15 grand sitting in the about state's this. treasury. You're not going to claim it? You're just going to let it sit there, Jason? Come I, on, I man. I have people in the process of doing this. This okay. has literally Good. been coming up for two years. And yeah, I do have 15K. And I think it's from when I was in New York. We had a bank account at one of my businesses. And somebody didn't empty it. Uh, and yeah, it's um, or it was some bill that somebody owed me or something. So yeah, they're trying to find that 15K. And I think I'm getting at Robinhood, five or 6% on my cash there. And so I was like, whoa, that's compelling. Because I've been J trading. Uh, and if you go to jaytrading.com, I decided you know, watching you do public market investing and Bill Gurley and other people, I was like, I need to learn as a private market investor. We invest in, you know, 50 to 100 startups a year. We tend to build an ownership position of six to 10% in them nowadays. We used to be under 1%. And I certainly saw companies I invested in, like Uber, Robinhood, Desktop Metal, become publicly traded companies. And I started to have to have a strategy as a portfolio manager of when do I distribute these? And this is a big discussion. Do you ride your let your winners ride or do you pair your positions? And in some cases, I was selling Uber in the private market for $31 to $36 a share when it was a private company, essentially where it's trading right now, but below its IPO price. I had opportunities to sell Robinhood at $25 a share, more than the price it's trading at now. And so I made some amazingly prescient private market trades we had Calm.com, a meditation app we're in. 
We had another uh, SaaS company that hit a billion dollars in revenue. And we started selling some of our positions and distributing to our syndicate members and to our fund members, which they're incredibly grateful for. And other people, when I sold them, were like, why are we selling? And so I said, you know what? I have to become, just because of the job I have, I have to start trading public markets to understand equities. Uh, And I talk about public equities on, or just public companies on my podcast all the time this week in startups and all in. And so at J Trading, I have made, uh, I'm up 3%. I started last summer making trades. Uh, the S&P is up 1.5% that time. I was up as high as 10, down as much as 15. But I started buying different stocks based on different theories. So I, I bought Stitch Fix because I was watching people who were involved in the company you know, uh, buy shares in it. I bought Disney, Amazon, Warner Brothers, Taiwan Semiconductor, Shopify, Robinhood, Uber, Apple, Netflix, and Facebook. But I had a different theory on each and I talked about it on my podcast just to be accountable. And I found when you're publicly trading, being accountable, saying your thesis on a program, you get back people who are so much more knowledgeable and deep in these names who then tell you you're wrong. And then you get to have this great dialogue. And public market investing is completely different than private market investing because you have so much public data available and you're not allowed to trade on internal private information. Now you look at private companies, all you're trading on is private information, insider information. If you do insider trading, you go to jail for public companies. And in private companies, that's all there is. There are only insiders and there's only one to a hundred investors in this company typically. Everything is insider information. Technically, you're sitting with the founders and hearing their vision. They're giving you a deck. They're giving you projections and you're the only person seeing it and you're making a private market trade. And so this has been wonderful for me as I look at what's happening in private companies. I'm seeing layoffs there. I'm seeing restructuring. I'm seeing pricing discussions, marketing discussions. And then I'm seeing the same thing happened at Facebook or Apple. So as but one example, Apple made it harder to target users for customer acquisition, right? They they started giving people more privacy and not letting you track people. Well, Facebook got hit by that pretty hard, but my startups got hit by that before that was ever public knowledge. I was watching startups tell me, hey, we're trying to acquire customers and our CAC, our customer acquisition cost, is going up. I said, why is that happening? Oh, this personal information is being blocked by Apple. I'm like, tell me more. So all of a sudden, you start to see what is happening at a five to 50-person company and at a 50,000 to 1 million person company like Amazon. It's been really uh, great for me to sharpen my blade and, and see what happens when they go public. But you do this too. You did the opposite. You went public to private. Right. And I think they inform each other. A very personal example, I was laughing as you're talking about this Apple, because listeners, if you try to buy a ticket on StubHub using Apple Pay, it makes your email, you have the choice to be anonymous email, and but it jacks up the uh, connection between the ticket brokers and they lose the ticket. And so I was sitting there at a, at a Nuggets game downtown LA, and one person after another came up and said, hey, I got the StubHub ticket, but it's not downloading. It's just like dozens of people. I'm sure they'll fix it, but just don't use an anonymous email if you're Apple Pay and, and using StubHub. So talk to me a little bit about, this is um, a topic that I think so many people struggle with. We do a Twitter poll and we ask people, we say, when you buy a security, and most of my followers are going to be public markets, but I said any investment. When you initiate the position, it could be a fund, it could be anything else, but, but what percentage of the time do you have sort of sale, this is to the, the Twitter poll, what percentage of the time do you have, do you establish sell criteria when you initiate the position? So like, how are you thinking about selling it? And it's like 90%, 95% don't. And, and the reason I say that is, hey, look, there's the investments that are going to tank or do poorly. And you got to think about how you're going to deal emotionally with, you know, are, are you going to double down? Are you going to cut your losses? Lots of different schools thought. But you also have to think about it from the winners. And you have a stock that doubles, hallelujah, thinking about skiing in Tahoe. Hey, I'm going to take this money and go to Japan. But every 10 bagger, every 100 bagger was once a, a two or three bagger, right? And so a lot of people tend to be uh, very quick to sell their gains. And so I know Sequoia has started, was the big one moving into this kind of like, hey, we're, we're going to maybe hold on to some of these public companies. But how do you think about these winners? Because I've seen both sides of it. Yeah. 
So my goal was to become a world-class public market investor. Now, I'm a world-class private market investor. That took me a decade. So I assume this will take a decade as well. So then I said, I want to find companies that are going to be five times bigger in 10 years. I just thought that is way bigger than the market grows, right? It doubles every seven years or so, I guess is a common wisdom. And so rule of 72, et cetera. So I just said five times bigger is absurd, right? Like these things are in 10 years to be growing one and a half times or something. So I'm going to try to find like real outliers. And so that requires a high growth company. I'm not doing this to preserve capital. I'm trying to find five X winners. So that means you're going to have some risk-taking companies. It can't be consensus companies all the time. And I looked at what was happening during this down market in the third quarter of 2022. And given what I know about companies, I said, these companies are greatly undervalued in many cases, and they have incredible management, and I have a front row seat to how innovative they are. And so I believe in studying products in the early stage. I make the majority of my decision based on the founder, the product, and the customer reaction to that product. Three things. The founder, the product, and the customer. And in an early stage company, they might have two customers when we invest. They might have five customers when we invest, might have 15, 50, who knows. And they might only be making 5,000 to 50,000 a month. That tends to be our sweet spot for an angel investment, very early stage. In public markets, you know, the, the management teams are pretty well established. You can garner some data on that. Do they do what they say they're going to do? And then the product is where I start to really look at it. And so when I made my Warner Brothers discovery trade and I made my uh, Netflix trade and I made my uh, Disney trades, looking at those companies, I perceived in each one of them some massive strength on the product front and then maybe that the overall category would be transformed in a way that people didn't anticipate. So for Netflix, yeah, people were in that stock, but it was incredibly low priced uh, historically. But when I saw what they were thinking of doing with advertising and how quickly they were moving, I said, whoa, product velocity. They're moving really fast to add this advertising tier and they're losing subscribers. And I was like, wait a second, they're losing subscribers. People have given up on the business, but people really want that advertising inventory. And I think that they can, they're one of the three possible winners on the road to what I believe will be 1 billion user products. I believe Netflix, Warner Brothers Discovery, and Disney will have, the three of them, will have 500 million to a billion users in the next decade. Those subscription level services have never existed in the history of humanity. The largest subscription services tended to be the telcos, 100 million people for AT&T or Verizon, right? Even AOL, it hit 30, 35 million at the peak, paid for dial-up service. Uh, but when you watch these companies all of a sudden start to break into 150 million, 250 million subs, I looked at each one. Netflix I bought because they were adding the ad tier and they were doing it quickly. It turns out that was a pretty good bet. I'm up you know, moderately on that one. Uh, Disney, I'm kind of treading water on, but I was watching their innovation with specifically Disney Plus and specifically what they were doing with the Star Wars series and Marvel series. And I watched those with my daughters and I was like, the quality level here... And what they're doing with John Favreau with The Mandalorian, Obi-Wan, Book of Boba Fett, it was very clear to me, having watched The Clone Wars with my daughters, how much IP there was in Star Wars and how well they were executing on it. I knew about Ashoka. And then I saw them, they're going to do an Ashoka series. She's Anakin Skywalker's Padawan. So Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader. It's Obi-Wan. It was his teacher. And I said, wow, they're going to really crush this if they just execute at a moderate level. And then I was like, and God forbid they figure out how to connect the parks and merchandising to Disney Plus, it's game over. So there is so much lift left for Bob Iger. If they can say, when you're watching The Mandalorian and you get to the end of the series, if it offers you to buy a Star Wars experience at a park at a discount or get your reservation for the new Mandalorian you know, ride or whatever experience, which they don't have yet, or they got you to buy the Baby Yoda Grogu doll, which they didn't do, and we bought if I'm being candid, we, we had bought on Etsy a Grogu Baby Yoda that maybe wasn't exactly licensed properly, but we had to have it for our daughters and somebody had made a bespoke one. Boom, I was like, that's the winner there. Then I watched Warner Brothers Discovery and I talked about Zaslov. DC's a mess. He puts James Gunn in charge of DC. James Gunn, who did Guardians of the Galaxy, who's incredibly talented. Great leadership. Then HBO, all the shows that people watch, White Lotus, this new uh, House of the Dragon, 
the new one, uh, oh, then you have Secession, you have the new one they're doing, uh, The Last of Us, you have Euphoria. These are must-watch appointment television, which doesn't exist anywhere. So I just looked at the three of them, I'm like, there's no way these things are not two, three, four times bigger in my mind in a decade. I'm going to start building positions in them. And then when they went down, I bought more dollar cost average into them. I want to hold them to see which of those three get to a billion first. I think those will triple in value, quadruple in value, 5x in value if they get to a billion. So, and then in terms of selling, I'm going for the long ball here. So unless management screws up, what I said to myself is, let's look at them on a yearly basis, not just quarterly, but let's look at them on a yearly basis. Do they get momentum year after year? And if they don't, I can always sell them and, and take the losses. But right now I'm feeling pretty good about them. And by the way, Andor listeners, my wife kind of despises a lot of this this sci-fi fantasy uh, shows that I love, but she was like, Andor is the best written show of 2022. She's like, I hate watching these Star Wars, but I love <laughs> but I love. And that show. one is not like any other Star Wars television that I've read. There was no lightsaber in season one, spoiler alert. It's not about the Jedi. <laughs> It's about the rebels and it's about the authoritarian stormtroopers and the emergence of this. It was really an intellectual new take on it. So you say, hey, this IP can be mined forever. And not only that, they can restart the IP anytime they want. So if they want to do the Star Wars movies over again in another 20 years, there's nothing that says they can't recast Luke Skywalker and redo the whole trilogy. In fact, they will. They'll redo all of them. They'll make alternate universes. If those sequels, the last three, you know, Force Awakens, they were terrible, they could recon them and take them out of canon and then just start a new one. And that's the power of this IP. They're going to have the X-Men and Fantastic Four, you know, as part of the Marvel Universe since they bought Fox. It was an expensive purchase. But when they put them in there, can you imagine? They're going to get to have, you know, the original Wolverine. The original, you know, uh, X Men characters, Picard, you know, all, you know, all those great uh, actors who played them, and then they'll get to flip them over and start them over again with the new young cast. It's going to be the X Men alone is doubles the cinematic universe. It's going to be extraordinary what Disney's going to be able to do. There's a great book for the listeners out there who have never been deep in the weeds on venture and dist- uh, not venture, excuse me, distress debt an activist investing like Carl Icahn days. There's a great book about the Marvel sort of bankruptcy and a lot of the agony and ecstasy and and just behind the scenes looks into it. We'll put it in the show note links. It's a really fun book. Comic Wars? Yeah, I think that might have been it. But um, Yeah, Marvel's Battle for Survival. Yeah. How Two Tycoons Battled Over Marvel. I can't wait to read that one. Any of these, like, particularly from the 80s, like these leverage buyout you know, world of barbarians at the gate. There's so much intrigue and complications behind these stories. And it's always got big personalities. Anyway, so you're doing this publicly. Part of it is, hey, I want to keep myself honest. Part of it is I want to learn. Has this started to inform your private market um, and like on how you decide to distribute or hold on to these? Is it more just like, hey, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. What I've learned is the public markets are getting priced to perfection. And a lot of the value is captured in the private market. I think you know that that's probably why you dipped into angel investing and early stage investing was to see if you could capture that that spread right between the series A and the eventual IPO. And so if that's the case, I have now said to my LPs, when we are at 25, 50, 100x on our investment, when we see those moments, we think it's going to be prudent if we have the opportunity and we're going to become even more maybe proactive and pursuing opportunities as opposed to just reacting from them. So I'm going to try to build that practice of being a little proactive. And I think selling 10, 20, 30% of your position in you know one, two, or three tranches, you could sell 10%, 10%, 10%, maybe you get a chance to sell 20%, and then 10%, whatever it is, to then lock in a series of wins, knowing that these are really high variance bets, that'll allow us to distribute to our LPs to distribute to our team, keep everybody motivated in the game. And, um, you know, if we have 70 or 80% or 60%, somewhere in that range, I think 70 is probably the right number. It could be 80, it could be 60. If we have that amount when we distribute from an IPO, that seems about the right number. Because you got to remember, we're investing, we invested in Uber when it was four and a half, five million million, Thumbtack, $5 million, com.com, $4 million. We're investing extremely early in these companies. And now, you know, we'll invest with like a company like com.com. We own 5% of the company. You know, for us to go from six or five to four and a half, does it really make a difference before it goes public and has an exit? I, I think we want to lock in those bets. And so, you know, the only regrets I have 
right now in some of these selling early is that I didn't sell. I don't have many. I'm trying to think of one where I sold and I regretted selling. Like I don't mind selling Uber at 31, 37, you know, a bef- couple years before the IPO at 45. But then I also like the idea of holding the winners. And um, so that that's where I've wound up. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think your approach is really thoughtful because behaviorally speaking, there is nothing worse as a poker player, right, than building up a big stack and then losing it all. The next day, you're kicking yourself like, oh, my God, I shouldn't have played that hand. I shouldn't have done this. And then it that re- very real emotional pain lasts for a long time. And this happens so much in investing markets. You know, is it the necessarily optimal outcome? And we always joke with people because people are always, always email me, call me and say, hey, Meb, you know, I'm thinking about buying this fund. Should I buy it? Or I'm thinking about selling this fund or this stock. And they're tearing their hair out, gnashing their teeth about it, stressing out. And I say, well, you know, if sell half or sell a quarter and it's not, it's going to give you the average of all the possible outcomes. And people hate hearing that because they want the sort of guru certainty, but also they want to cheer for something. You know, they want to look back and say, ah, I was so smart. I told you so I was right. I sold at the top or, you know, I got out before it crashed. And so, but that's not probably the most thoughtful way to go about it. Robinhood is my big example. You know, this, I, I had opportunities to sell and we also were locked up in that one. You know, unlike some other investments, we have a direct listing. This was a lockup. It wasn't a SPAC. So we didn't have the opportunity to sell those shares for six months. And then it's a $10, $12 share when we're distributing as opposed to a 30 or 40 or 20 or, you know, it peaked at like 60 when there was some weird stuff that happened in the first couple of days of trading. But, you know, I still believe in the company and I actually bought some because I think this company is going to be worth more than $8 billion or $9 billion, wherever it's at now in the coming years. I think it's going to be a $50 stock in in the next five years. So I think it'll be a 5Xer for me. And so I literally bought it with cash in addition to owning it from when I bought it, you know, for a couple pennies a share uh, as an angel. Yeah. One of the reasons I like listening to you on uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, your podcast, by the way, listeners, two good recent Jason podcasts. You had a great one with, I'm blanking on the name, but uh, Airbnb co-founder. Joe Jebbia, who people thought he's with a G. Gebbia is how people have pronounced it, but it's actually Jebbia. And he is one of the co-founders. Thank you. He was just on. Amazing guest. Brad Feld also. We'll put him in the show notes links. So take a listen to those. But you're not that old. But some of the older VCs or public market people who have been through a few cycles, you know, usually have the scars or the, the experience to, in a good way, remember it. And you had a couple good quotes or tweets. I don't know which. But, you know, you were talking about cycles. And you talk a lot about it, the good times, and the bad times. A lot of people don't. You know, they simply are used to one regime and they get used to it. And it was a really long one for, for a long time in the U.S. But you said... Fortunes are built during the down market and collected in the up market. People's reputations are made in the bad times, more than the good times. So very similar sort of takes. And talk to us a little bit about how to think through a sort of like full cycle investing in your world, because it, it in no other world does it kind of swing between euphoria, Armageddon, on the operating side, as well as the investor side. Yeah, I've been very lucky to have great mentors. I was a journalist. And then I was an entrepreneur, and then I became an angel investor because Sequoia Capital, my friend Ruloff, both the Story to Scouts program, he gave me some money to invest famously. And I was the first scout along with a, a guy named Sam Altman. <laughs> so the two of us had Sequoia companies. He had Looped. I had Mahalo. Neither of those companies worked out particularly well, but we were amazing at placing bets. He actually did a, a bet on Stripe, and I did Uber and Thumbtack as scouts. And those two are two of the greatest investments in the history of venture capital on a return because he invested in Stripe in the, I think, the seed round. So it's an amazing, like maybe 2000X or something, depends on when Stripe goes public. Anyway, I got to hang out with Michael Moritz, Doug Leone, Brad Feld, Jerry Colonna, Fred Wilson. I mean, these were my the people who, you know, I, I got lessons from as a journalist, as an entrepreneur, and as a capital allocator. And what I learned is great companies are formed independent of the cycle. And then when the cycle is hot, the prices are high and the diligence and the time to get to know companies is low and control provisions and governance gets weak. And so you're paying a very high price for a company. What actually matters is entry price, right? And protective provisions so that you don't get massively diluted. The primary one is pro rata. Do you have the ability to keep investing in a company? Now with Uber and as a scout, we just made a small investment 
turned into a huge return, but we didn't have a follow-on strategy for the Sequoia Scouts program. And when I did my first fund, it was a $10 million fund. On paper, I think it's five or six X right now, and I'm raising my fourth fund. So I'm I'm a very elite level. Uh, if you were to include my scouts, I am super elite level in terms of returns on paper and distributed. That being said, watching what happened, I was like, wow, flummoxed at the difference between when I started investing after the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009, 2010, investing in companies for $5 million and taking our time, and you had a month or two for the round to close. And then the last five years, people were throwing money at these companies. And I was looking at companies we had invested in, get $50 million or $100 million valuations before they had product market fit. And I was like, hey, can we sell into this? <laughs> and sometimes the founders were a little offended, but I was like, hey, you know, for our shareholders, this might be a good time for us to give them a little bit of a return. And I passed on investing during that 2021 period and in 2020 on many companies because I said, we're comfortable with our 8%, our 12% position. We're either net sellers or we're going to stand pat. And I had to explain people the term stand pat. And for founders, you know, they're like, well, we want you, J-Cal, to invest in every round forever. And we said, you know what? At this valuation, we're going to stand pat. It's 100 times revenue. You said you have $2 million in revenue, you're getting a $200 million valuation. We're going to stand pat. We're not buying more shares. <laughs> when the valuation in the, becomes you know, 10x or 20x top line revenue, okay, yeah, let's talk about it. You have 2 million and you have 20 million. So that's where you know, my brain unlocked. You have to look at the fundamentals of the deal. And is this going to get a return for your investor? Not just do you love the founder, not just do you love the space or the customers or the product, which my 1.0 angel investor did. But becoming a public market investor and watching some of these come to fruition, I got very much attuned to the concept of, hey, the public markets weigh these stocks, right? It's a weighing mechanism, I guess it's the famous quote. And I was like, we're not weighing these things anymore in private market land. These things have nothing to do with gravity. There is no scale. <laughs> the scale has been thrown out the window. People are momentum investing. And I, I'm looking at a company saying, wait a second, you're investing a company with zero revenue and is losing all this money at a $30 billion valuation, a $20 billion valuation. I'm talking about ChatGPT right now. Now, it's a strategic investor. They have different reasons to invest. And I'm not hating on the company. If you can get Microsoft to invest at a high valuation and do a commercial deal with them, Sam Altman is a genius and he's timing it perfectly. I think he's playing everything. You couldn't do it better than he's doing with ChatGPT. But somebody asked me, would you invest in that round? And I said, of course not. And they said, why not? Do you not believe in ChatGPT or Sam? I said, no, I believe in those... Sam Altman's a gr just a great capital allocator founder. And so I've gotten very disciplined on that and very proud of the fact that we passed on so many rounds. And we've had to do a little communication with our CEOs and founders because they're like, oh, does that mean you don't love us anymore, Jake Allen? I was like, nope. It means as a capital allocator, as somebody who represents pools of capital, I can't invest in a company where the revenue's flat or sideways or down. You need to come to me with six months of up and to the right or on average up and to the right if you want us to increase our position. So we've just gotten very good at communicating that to folks. And I am more excited about this year investing than I have been in 10 years. This to me, people are coming to me with amazing deals. They've got discipline and the scale makes sense. Like, you know, you're putting the startup and the business on a scale. You're looking at it going, okay, that, that checks out with the valuation. Okay, the diligence checked out. We talked to the customers. Meb, I had people who said to me, you cannot talk to the customers and I, during the diligence process. And I said, why not? And they're like, you're not investing enough. I'm like, I'm putting a million dollars in. They're like, yeah, well, the lead investor is putting in $4 million. It's a $10 million round. You're putting in only a million. And they didn't talk to customers. I'm like, what? They didn't talk to customers? And I'm now going back in our diligence and like, you know, we're not perfect with diligence. Sometimes, you know, we make mistakes in diligence, but our diligence process as seed stage investors was, I would say, two, three, four X than what I was seeing venture tourists doing series B and C's at. And I'm like, you're putting in 25 million and I put in 500,000. I did more diligence than you. They're like, well, these people are relying on you doing the diligence. I'm like, that's dangerous because <laughs> I invested in a $5 million or $15 million company and you invested at 500 million. You need to talk to some customers here. You need to look at the PL. You need to look at the customer acquisition costs. So, you know, the discipline is back in Silicon Valley. Private market companies are coming back to me. You know, they wanted to do, a, I had a company just to, I'll obscurify it into like 
a profile of, let's say, like three or four companies recently. They told me in 2022, they're raising an up round. It's going to be 2x what we invested at. Great. So let's just pick 20 million as a number. We invested at 20 million. They say, hey, we're going to get 40. Are you participating or not? I said, yeah, get the term sheet and uh, we'll do our pro rata in all likelihood, or at least we'll offer it to our syndicate members. They said to me, we want you to lead it. I said, no, you know, it's better hygiene. We own 12% of the company. We're picking a random number here. You should get another lead. It's better for you as the founders to price it. Because if I price it, I'm pricing it at last year's price. Same price, 20 million. So I said to them that, and they said, no, 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 we're doubling it. I said, great. They come back. They're like, hey, we didn't get a lead. So we want to do a round at the same price. I'm like, get a lead. That price is at that because the market has deteriorated and the performance isn't here. Your, your revenue has gone down or it's flat. You need to show revenue going up. They're like, well, what would you price it as? I was like, if you get a deal, let's just take the $20 million average. I said, if you got a deal for 15 or 10 and you got somebody to put in 5 million, we would stand pat and we would take the dilution because the company's not growing. So not only am I not going to pay double the price, I'm not going to do the flat round because that was six months ago we had that conversation. The market has deteriorated. You should just close $5 million at any valuation you can get. And we might do a little pro rata or put in a token amount of support. And these were very hard conversations to have with founders. And I watched them go from not believing they weren't worth twice as much to not believing they were worth last year's valuation to then now coming back to me and be like, we'll do a deal at any cost. And it's like, you know what? Investors have their choice of companies right now. You should have taken the money when you had the chance. So people start to anchor, you know, if anything, the hedonic adjustment of money and numbers and wealth, people always anchor to that new number. And it's, it's problematic. It's, it's problematic, particularly it when that number- To use what the millennials say, problematic. It's not, it's not necessarily liquid, right? It's, it's just the it's a number up there somewhere. So for the listeners- Give us a quick review. I mean, if you listen to our conversation five years ago, Jason, it's funny because you're like, what's the future hold? What's things look like? And you're like, you know, probably going to do X, Y, Z. This many deals a year, you're probably for five more years. And then, you know, that'll probably be it. And then here we are, you're like, got, you know, doing more than ever, you know, killing it on a number of different initiatives. Give the listeners an overview of kind of like your syndicate direct to investor offering as well as your new fund to the extent you can kind of talk about it and, and what you're doing there. Paradoxically, I can talk about it. So when you raise a venture fund, you cannot talk about it. 506B says, hey, you can only invite people you already know. And if you publicly talk about raising a venture fund, you will then reset your you know sort of quiet period, just using a term. And uh, you know that's why venture capitalists don't talk about their funds. And then people are like, oh, I would have loved to bid in your fund, Jake Al, or whoever. And it's like, yeah, I'll talk to you again in four years when we raise the next fund or three years, whatever the pace is. And then there's 506C where you can talk about it. And the difference is when you talk about it publicly, which I have on All In or This Week in Startups, hey, I'm raising our fourth fund, I can meet new people, but then they have to be certified uh, independently that they are in fact an accredited investor or what's called a QP, a qualified purchaser. You can look that up online. Basically says you're a rich person. You've got a lot of resources, a lot of net worth, and you can make decisions to invest in private companies or funds because you're sophisticated in some way. That's how it works here in the United States. So the benefit of doing this is I get to meet new people, which is what I want to do. I can close a 10, 25, $50 million venture fund just by emailing people I know at this point in my career. I wanted to meet a lot of new people. So I said, just emailed our big syndicate list, which is a, an angel investing club at the syndicate.com. So when our funds would make an investment, like we did in Com, we put 50,000 in from our first fund. And then I emailed everybody on our syndicate list and $328,000 came in from the syndicate. That first fund was a $10 million fund. I was like, okay, 50 basis points in this meditation app, I'll give it a shot. I had no idea that $350,000, $28,000 would come in from the syndicate or so or about that number. But that's 6X what the fund did. So we were doing these small funds, 10 million, 11 million, and then 44 million, one, two, and three. And a multiple, we would put 250 in and then 750 would come in from the syndicate. So there was more demand, but only half the companies that our fund invested in elected to do a syndicate. So our syndicate represents the half of the deals that we do. Well, and what was the main reason? Was it because people, they didn't want information leakage? They just did too much of a hassle? What was... Oversubscribed is the number one reason. They didn't have the room for it. And number two was they didn't want to go through the process of pitching the syndicate and it takes six weeks to close. And you have now 150 people on your cap table under one LLC 
And yes, some people might think leakage of data, although we've never had that happen. Ultimately, what happened was in the non-hot market, everybody was like, yeah, I don't want to do the syndicate. When the market got hot and things were closing, they're like, oh, I don't want to do it. Now, in some cases, the syndicate had pro rata. So we had founders who were like, I'm not going to do the syndicate this time. I'm like, we have pro rata. We have information rights. You don't have a choice here. I don't have a choice. We'll get sued if we don't offer them their pro rata. And they're like, yeah, well, I don't want to do it. So tell them we're not going to do it. I'm like, no, <laughs> my job is to make sure they get their pro rata. So we had to defend our pro rata, as we call it in the industry, a number of times. And uh, it was uncomfortable in you know a small handful of them, but we fought for it. We demanded it. We told new you know, venture firms that were coming in, because sometimes a new venture firm will come in and say, tell JCal and the other angel investors, they don't get their pro rata, we're not doing our investment. And then in those situations, it happened about five times, five out of five times, those venture firms relented and said, in fact, apologized. And I think three or four out of the five, JCal, we, we want to have a good relationship with you. We're not going to take your pro rata. But they put the founders in a really gnarly position. And this is why public versus private investing is super difficult and different. You have to have a reputation, chutzpah, stature in the industry if you're going to defend that position. And when I was a first-time angel, I didn't. But after a time, you know, do you want to piss off Jason Calacanis? I'm talking myself in the third person, but it's not a good look if I'm an early-stage investor and you're a Series B investor and you try to elbow me out of a deal and you try to use the founder as the way to do it. So the founders would be like, I think they're going to pull the term sheet if you take your parade. I was like, who's doing it? And they're like, this firm. I'm like, I just had that person on my podcast six weeks ago. And I'll call him. And they're like, don't call him. I'm like, of course I'm going to call him. We're shareholders. Don't worry about it. So I have to talk the founder off the ledge. I talk to the person and I tell the person, listen, I know you want to put 10 million and I know you want the whole round. We have 10% of the round. We have a million. Do you have a problem with us taking our pro rata? And we also have a board seat option when we own over 10%, which we do. And you're asking them to give up our board seat and to give up our pro rata. Do you want to have an adversarial relationship with me? Because the next time I do a deal, I'll email Ruloff, Chamath, David Sachs, Bill Gurley, and I won't introduce them to you. Yeah. Yeah. Dead silence on the phone. This is high level, sharp elbowed, private market, conflicted, like, you know, (laughs) uh, sparring that occurs that you don't, maybe you do have in the public markets. I don't know if there's an equivalent to it, but that's the stuff I have to do. And um, I think that's what I get paid for is fighting for the early investors. And so we're raising our fourth fund. I think we had 51 million in demand so far. And I haven't met with institutionals yet. I'm starting the institutional thing after my Japan ski trip and my speaking gig. So in March, late February, March, I'll start going to institutions. We filled up Let me take a look here. Um, Hold on, I'll tell you the exact numbers because I literally have a Slack room that tells me uh, launch fund four's uh, allocation requests. And looking at the allocation requests, we had 260 accredited investors for 22 million, uh, 161 qualified purchasers for 29 for a total of 51 million. Now we already had some other accredited investors, but that's 421 investors in demand. I think we've been able to close about 30 or 40 million of that, somewhere in that range, because and I, I don't have the exact numbers here, because you can only have 250 or 10 million in accredited. So we write, I'm sorry, in accredit, uh, accredited investors. So we have maybe 12 or 15 million more in demand than we can accept. So now that all accredited investor slots are open, except for maybe five or 10 that I keep for my close friends, like in pocket, uh, we can only accept qualified purchasers now. So I'll start meeting with family offices. People put 250K to 5 million in, and I'll start that process. But it's been wonderful to just be able to say on Twitter or all in or on this podcast, yeah, I'm raising a fund, jason at calacanis.com. Email me if you're interested. And I did five webinars with accredited investors and all this demand came in and we met all these people and we were oversubscribed immediately. So this is the democratization of venture capital. That is the next step for me as a fund manager. I did the democratization of syndicates along with Naval and AngelList and Republic and some other folks, and you did some. That's been accomplished. Now there's a bunch of angel investors after I wrote my book, Angel, and it's translated into 11 languages, yada, yada. Now there's all these people who are like, you know what? I've done some private market stuff. Now I want to be in venture. How do I get in a venture fund? And typically you don't is the answer. You know, big retirement funds, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, they take all the stuff. So I'm going to start meeting with those people. I don't know how I'll do how I'll do with them, but I don't have to have them anymore. 
I could just raise a 30, 40, 50 million dollar fund, raise that every two years or a year or three years, whatever it is that we deployed intelligently, and then just start launch fund five, launch fund six with a wait list. And so I think the democratization of venture capital is the next card to turn over. And for me, having studied the data, and Shamat studies the data, my friend um, Brad Gerstner studies the data, and we talk about it on All In and This Week in Startups and at our poker game. You know, the vintages of these funds are very important. My vintage as an angel investor was, whoa, with Uber and Thumbtack and Robinhood and Fund One, amazing. What's the vintage going to look like for 2020, 2021? It's not going to be good. I think the vintages of 2023 to 2026 are going to be like the incredible vintages because the grapes are so delicious, like $5 million, $10 million valuations with 10 customers. Oh, yum, yum. Like if I can get in a company between five and 10 million and they already have customers, what I've eliminated is product market fit or basic product market fit? Or are these founders brave enough to release a product and to charge customers? Once you've charged a customer, zero to one, not in finishing the product, but in getting a, a credit card, that as David Sachs has talked about, my friend David, you know, he said, forget about zero to one product market fit, zero to one customer, zero customers, one customers. Getting one customer to give you a credit card, that speaks volumes for you know the potential of the customer, the company. And so I'm just loving this period of time to your overall question. And the focus level is great. Man, the focus level for founders the last four or five years, I have so many founders who would be great number threes, great number twos, you know, but they got the CEO slot because there's a lot of money sloshing around. And I just thought, you know, this person would be a great CTO or a great head of sales, a great chief marketing officer, evangelist. But are they cut out to be the CEO? Well, based on the performance, no. Maybe they need more years of training. It's like almost like the NBA had 300 teams. It went from 30 teams to 300. And you're like, oh, you used to have two all-stars per team. Or some teams became super teams with three. And those were the teams to look out for. Then we had like teams with no all-stars. And like, who is this you know, ragtag group of people, now the industry is consolidating back. And you're starting to see two or three founders start a company as opposed to those three founders start three companies. And th that consolidation of talent is critically important. And so that's what I'm working on that a lot with companies that maybe should shut down or maybe these three companies should merge, create a new cap table. So there's a lot of funkiness going on in the industry right now. But the overall thing people should understand is the fortunes are made in the down market investing in private market companies, and then the market gets hot and things go public. And as best I can tell, that's when they're collected. Um, and so you just have to have the chutzpah and you know the doggedness as a capital allocator to make bets in a down market. And that's why the public market investing has been so great for me. I made those bets in this Q3 and Q4 when people were like, market's going into recession. This is the worst time ever to invest. I think I may have made some good trades. We'll see. We talked to investors over the last number of years, and I said, look, on the angel side, people getting excited about it, you know, they want to cannonball into the pool and say, look, you know, think of it in terms of vintages and, and like, you know, wine or whatnot, um, and commit to like a five-year process. Because you just put all your money in year one over the last few years, like there eventually will be a downturn. It's natural. It's normal. It's the creative destruction of financial markets. But like, if you don't have some money to invest on the on the other side, it, you're going to miss a lot of the opportunities. You got to have some cash around you. Or said in poker terms, like you can never have your stack taken away, then you can't bet, right? If you're down to zero, we don't need to get into this because we've bemoaned it over the years long enough. The accredited investor rules are stupid and eventually, hopefully, they'll get replaced. But listeners, email Jason if you're interested in the funds, the syndicate. It's got a lot of information. But one of the things you do uh, really thoughtfully and tell the listeners, because I miss one of them, but there's a number of things. You got Founder University, you got an Angel Conference, which is what I miss. It's not happening this year. No, it is happening. We're doing Angel. We're going to do our Angel Summit in June in Napa. Uh, and uh, we'll have a website up shortly. You can email me about it. But yes, uh, it's, you know, it's been 110 people. Uh, LaunchAngelSummit.com, I think is the last website we had up. It's going to be June 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th. So everybody arrives on a Sunday. 
And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we just talk about Monday and Tuesday are like the main content and event days, kind of modeled after Sun Valley Island Company's conference where you do activities in the afternoon and in the morning you meet people and do talks uh, and then great dinners and late night poker. Um, then we have something called founder.university. It's a program where we charge people $500 for a 12-week program. If they come to every all 12 weeks on Monday night, <laughs> Thursday is optional. If we take attendance, if they come every Monday, we give them their $500 back at the end. 96% of people complete the course. And then some of them just say, keep the 500 and you know, put it towards the next thing. That's how we meet people really early. And then we have our launch accelerator. Launch accelerator is just like YC or Techstars. We put $100,000 into a company for 6 or 7%. And that's what our fund does. But with Founder University, we said, if anybody gets their product completed and gets a couple of customers and there are two or three founders and they're builders, let's give them $25,000 for 2.5% of the company and be their friends and family round. And we've done this, I think, 20 times now, where we gave 25K for 2.5% on a simple note. And then we just tell them like, hey, we just want to start a relationship with you. And it's actually really fascinating to be that early. So I, I was like, wow, we're not making 25K checks anymore, but I want to have a little structure and get to know these people with my team and I don't scale. So I put two of my best people, Kelly and Presh, on running this. And we've now done three or four of them, three or 400 people come to them. And we find... 10 to 20 companies at the end of it who, I think we're actually we're up more to more than 30 of these companies. Of the 300 founders who come, about 100 of them actually build companies that are interesting. And then out of those, we invest in 20 of them. And so that's what our fund will do. We might Our fund might put 100, we might be doing 100 or 200 of these investments. Two and a half to $5 million worth of the fund might be these 25K checks. What that does is now we have skin in the game. We're on the cap table. We're the first investor in the company. It's super powerful to be the first investor. I was the third or fourth investor in Uber. That was super powerful. It made me a legend in Silicon Valley to the point at which people joke about it. And it's kind of a meme that I was the third or fourth investor. I want to be the first investor in like 10 unicorns. And the way to do that is to give them that two, 25K for 2.5%, $1 million valuation. Take my 25K, incorporate, get a lawyer, and uh, set up your website is basically what we're doing. You know, then we have our launch accelerator and all of that's done through the fund. And then maybe the fund invests 250K to a million dollars. And then the syndicate will do maybe 250 to a million dollars. Between those four investment opportunities, we hope to get to 15% in our winners. That's our targeted goal. Why is that important? If you have a winner and you're the early stage investors, you know it. You watch it go from, I watch Com go from 10,000 in total revenue to then have 10,000 paid subscribers at $10 a month to 100,000 to a million. It's like the most magical thing to watch. Like you see some it's of crazy. these, it's so much fun and you feel so- Which one was the most fun for you and had the best ramp up? Oh man, let me think about this. You know, I actually looked the other day because, you know, my, my approach is slightly different. I definitely use the J-Cal playbook when, when looking through these companies, but it's almost 10 years in, it's over 300 companies. But I was trying, and a lot of these are on paper now, like only 10%-ish, maybe 20% have had some sort of liquidity bankrupt IPO. And my wheelhouse is sort of, well, historically, I don't know what you call it today, but sort of seed A, so five to 20 million. So with the last two years, five to 30 million. You had any 50Xers, any 100Xer yet? On paper, there's a few. Chipper Cash, which was an African startup, is is well into that territory. Uh, Jeeves was one that's well into that territory. Gren didn't do so bad out of your group. You Oh, did you get a distribution on it? Yes. That's great. Yeah, that was a great one for us. Yeah, Gren was huge. But a number of these on paper, but I've seen two that have gone public that have shown both sides of what we were talking about earlier, where one, they both sold some on the way up. And in both cases, I was kind of furious. I mean, not really. I'm, it's These are small bets for me. But one then you know went public and had liquidity, but the other one went down like ninety five percent. So it's like you know as you see both sides of it, where you say, oh God, uh, if it had only been the one that had gone up and then it had been like my entire portfolio and then went down ninety five percent, I'd be despondent. Well, you learn about the power law, and the power law is like nothing else in investing or in society in the world. The concept that an angel investor or a seed investor could get a thousand X an investment. Like that doesn't exist in public markets. I don't think in the history of public markets, I'm not talking about thousand percent. We're saying X at the end, you know, or 500 X or hundred X. When people talk about a huge win, 
in the public markets, they're talking about a five bagger or a 10 baggers. In fact, I said, I'm going for five baggers in 10 years. You have to get very comfortable with 80% of your companies being worth zero. And those companies take a lot of your time. In fact, they'll take the majority of your time just on a percentage basis. And if they're struggling, well, they're going to have three or four times the amount of questions, problems, conversations. And your reputation is built on the failed companies. With the winning companies, the founders love you forever. Me and Travis and Uber, Robinhood and Vlad and uh, you know uh, Michael and, and Alex at Com. When we see each other, it's high fives and hugs and war stories and awesome. I spend a hundred times that effort on the losing company. I have been working on a company that's being recapped and you know was worth twenty million and now is worth you know in the recap one million maybe two million, and I'm still fighting with them to save the founder's equity value, the team's value, and give it another shot. And it's uncomfortable to have a company that was worth 10 million become worth a million. But the founders want to keep going. If the founders and the management team want to keep going, and I can, I'm literally giving, I'm going to make this a blended story again, so I don't talk about specific companies. But imagine a company worth 15 million, has $3 million invested in it, is now worth a million. And then you have to recap the company. So I'm dealing with a bunch of cantankerous, you know, situation and people are not happy. And I said, okay, number one, do we leave in the company and the vision? The answer is yes. Great. Okay. Number two, does everybody want to work together or fight? Okay. Everybody wants to work together. So I got consensus. I said, okay, here's an idea. We take the 3 million, we make that worth. I'm just going to pick a number, 30% of the company in common shares. Those 3 million people, the people put 3 million in, they have 30% of the company, but it's common. Sorry, you're going to convert. We're going to give the founders of the company, let's say 10%, the management team, 30%. And we'll give the new investors 25% of the company for putting but 250K in. And the existing investors who put 3 million can participate pari parzu on a percentage basis pro rata in that incredibly juicy financing since the company has tried for a year to get funded and can't. And now the company's still in play if we do this. And okay, I'll put in 50K as a high profile angel to get this started. And I'll take some risk or 100K or 150, whatever of the 250. I'm doing that kind of hard work. It's never going to hit my Uber investment, my Robinhood investment, my Com investment, our Grin investment. It's never going to be worth what lead IQ is worth, whatever, in all likelihood. But it feels to me like the right thing to do. And if I save that company, and let's say it sells for 20 million. Well, then those people who put 3 million and doubled their money and they got to save from a zero and the founders, 5% each or 10% each, whatever it winds up being, the management team, they got $8 million or $16 million distributed. And the new investors, hey, they got a 20X, mazel tov, fantastic. We did the right thing. And I, I'm looking at it saying, this will be a reputation building experience. This founders and this management team and these investors, they're going to love me forever that I took the leadership position here and said, here's how we should do it. And, uh, you know, people think I'm an idiot. Um, I have contemporaries of mine who are like, you're an idiot for wasting your time on this kind of stuff. Just tell them you're happy to uh, sell your shares or shut it down and take the loss. And I was like, nope, I'm happy to fight to the end. Um, and I want to have that reputation. I mean, it's hard to always look back on it, but, you know, when it feels like the right thing to do, regardless of the effort, like it, it you got to play the long game of financial markets because people, they do remember, right? And one of the things you touched on, and we talked about this on one of your one of your events, can't remember if it was founder university or whatever, but this concept of power laws, and it certainly exists in private markets. There's some great research that's come out in public markets. Best and Binder listeners will put a bunch of the show note links. We talked about this before about public markets where all the returns come from 5 10% of the securities, the McDonald's, the Walmarts, the Amazons, the Apples. And that's one of the reasons indexing works. And there's another whole area that we talk about, which is trend following Jcal, which you would love to have this this whole as as somewhat of a trader now, this managed futures world where this famous uh, trading experiment from the nineteen early nineteen eighties involving Richard Dennis and William Eckhart called the Turtles. Have you ever heard about this? It's such a fun story where they were debating, can you train traders? And these were like guys out of the pits of Chicago, and they had a methodology that's essentially letting your winners ride and cutting your losses. So trying to capture the giant multi-baggers, but doing it on, you know, cotton, I mean, uh, uh, wheat or the Swiss franc or euro dollar or the 30-year US bond, right? So global macro stuff. 
and it's been one of the most successful trading strategies in the last 40 years. It's a little more esoteric, but it's such a fun story because they put an ad in the paper and they trained like 20 traders and they made hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of them who are still investing today, Jerry Parker, one of my favorites, like one of the nicest guys ever from Richmond, Virginia. I think he's now in Florida. Anyway, I'll send you a link later, but uh, some of our old podcasts with Jerry Parker. It's a similar philosophy, different application. So VC, public markets, you're trying to find the big winners because a 50, 100x takes care of all the losers, right? Basically (laughs) the power law. Yeah. It's getting dark in uh, Tahoe. This is when you know we had a great pod is when the sun has gone down and my face is super shiny and the last skier goes by. I don't know what that skier is doing because the mountain closes at four and it's 445. So that person was, these guys were having hot toddies or something at the top of the mountain and they decided to do a final bomb. Good for them. There's a place in Austria called St. Anton where they have the big operas kind of up the mountain. And so people have to ski down afterwards and like this, you know, 7, 8 p.m. or whatever the time it is in the dark. And it just looks like a little minefield. There'll be like people sleeping over here. Just like, oh my gosh, you kids, you can't walk down. Like there's no way to get down. I heard there's night skiing in Japan and that's like a thing. They light up the whole mountain. Is that true? It's true, but it's the last thing you want to do because it's often cold and you are exhausted because you just skied for you know six hours in the best powder of your life. So uh, I haven't done it. Do, do you ski or snowboard? I do both, but I mostly ski now because I usually have a limited amount of days and it's hard for me. Did you bring me. skis with you or did you rent? I did bring them historically with our guides. They used to have all the equipment and we do the kind of combo touring Alpine, you know, setup. But, you know, I would definitely, if you could try to bring your own gear, Naseko will be fine. Naseko, you got plenty of stuff. But if you're going to some of the other places, it's, um, you'll be happy to uh, have your own stuff and eating ramen and udon for lunch and sushi for dinner. So I don't have powder skis. I have hybrid skis, Rosignols. So they're not the really wide ones. I need powder skis. Yeah. I personally would not go over there with anything under a hundred underfoot. So I, I was skiing on some 120 atomic bent chetlers and they were actually a little long, but I'll send you a video. You definitely I, I brought two pairs of skis and I only almost 120s are the width or the height? The width, like right underfoot. So they're one high 170s, low 180s, but 120 is the width. So the powder skis, but most kind of mountain cruisers are like 90s, but I don't think I would ski anything under 100 minimum. Yeah, I got to figure out what my raw signals are, but this has been great just for the ski advice for everybody. And anybody has tips for me, Jason at Calacanis.com, my first name at my last name. I'm Jason on Twitter and Instagram. DM me, put my uh, put my Jason uh, handle. You can get some locals. I, I did I did a tweet. I was like, who wants to do a meetup in, uh, in Hokkaido? And got some fun responses, but... Yeah, I'm excited to do it. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, this has been amazing. Love the pod. Jason, it's been a blessing. What's the single best place where people can go? They they want to get in touch with you. They want to send you a wire with a bunch of investments. They want to follow your Angel University. Uh, anytime, Jason at Calacanis.com, C-A-L-A-C-A-N-I-S.com. That'll be my email for life because it's my first name. It's my last name, first name at lastname.com. And then I'm Jason on Twitter, DMs open, and Jason on Instagram if you want to see ski pictures from Naseko. One last question for someone yeah. who is a domain acquirer, who's been very good, um, <laughs> inside.com, the syndicate, the syndicate.com. Yeah. You, you, you have a good job of acquiring things early, the Tesla early off yeah. the, uh, the ramp. I serial I number one of the Model S and number 16 of the Roadster. I need yeah. a Jason estimate. I'm trying to get my last name. So favor.com. From the people who own it, I'm not going to tell you who own it because it might bias your uh, estimate. So it's a one word, but it's a name and it's not a, a vernacular word like sofa.com. What do you think is the, the correct ballpark amount? Five letters. I have um, the .org, but I need the .com. Five letter something. .com, 50 to 250. Okay. Um, it really right. depends on if it's common language. And I don't think there's like a Faber common language. I had Jason.com in my sites. I think they wanted 500K for it, 250 for it. I was like, I'll give you 100. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. need Jason.com. I got CalCanis.com. Yeah. And somebody else bought it, unfortunately, like a crypto person. And so I, maybe I regret it. 
They're in a bear market. That might be coming up for sale soon. So you don't know. I think it's a developer. Jason Greenwald owns it. Uh, shout out to Jason Greenwald. Good purchase. And I think he's a domainer and he's obviously very wealthy and he's uh, an internet guy and he owns Jason.com. Congratulations. He owns J- uh, So I, I don't think I can uh, get it from him. All right. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, and yeah, um, if anybody has a great, the, the most important thing for folks is if you meet a company, they have, you know, 5,000 to 50,000 a month in revenue, $500 a month in revenue, but you think the founder is amazing, the product's excellent introduce me to him or them, I should say, they, them, he, she, whoever, um, immediately. And don't ask for permission to email to introduce me to a founder. Just introduce me to the founders. I can take it from there. Jason at Calacanis.com. You do not need to ask permission to introduce me to a great founder. Perfect, bud. Um, this was a blast. Thank you, sir. Hope to see you soon. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.